I first met Stephen LaRue in 2018 during a visit to Charles Heisig in Reims. He greeted me with a warm smile and friendly handshake before getting down to tasting business. Unusually, we started with Charles's Rosé Reserve. He told me, we like to start with a non-vintage rosé as the amount of reserve wine is twice less at 20% with just five to six years of age. In our brute reserve, it's the opposite with 40% reserve wine at an average age of 10 years. It was a pivotal moment that reframed my mind to appreciate the significance of the reserve wine system in creating Charles's unequivocal style. The proportion and age has a massive effect on the body of the wine. And indeed, the non-vintage rosé was far fresher than the non-vintage brute. Charles's characterful sourcing of fruit, notably the inclusion from Mokgo and generous and masterful inclusion of reserve wines in their non-vintages, set the scaffolding for the Maison's cathedral-like structure, richness and complexity. In this interview, I talked to Stephen about Charles's defining style, but also how it's evolving, as well as the rise and rise of Charles under his leadership and through the incredible work of former and current chefs de cave. So welcome, Stephen. It's great to speak with you today. Charles Heidseck is, in my mind, one of the truly great maisons of champagne known for its unmistakably rich, complex and textural profile, but also a cathedral-like structure and scintillating energy, something that is particularly celebrated across its non-vintage cuvées. Can you explain the profile of the house and some of the key approaches and decisions that are made to bring this incredible stylistic profile to each champagne? Hello, Sarah. Nice to see you again. Well, that's a very, that's a very elaborate, complex question. <laughs> just trying to figure out how I can answer that in a clear way. I would say that Charles is very well known by wine freaks, the wine gurus, and I would say Charles lovers, to be one of, not the, but one of the master blenders of champagne. We like to be known and appreciated for the quality of our brut reserve, you, you, you named it, which is our non-vintage officially, or should I say multi-vintage? And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's, it's a blend of a huge array of, of reserve wines going up to 25 years old and topped up and complemented with, uh, with wines of the new harvests. I actually like to say that the, the history of the Bottle Brut Reserve starts somewhere about 20, 25 years prior, because we, we do add some wines from the 1990s. We're now in 2023. So we have some wines from 1990, uh, maybe 1 or 2%. And these wines uh, are, we call them the spice wines. They, they, are, they, they, they give exactly as spice curry or salt and pepper, they will, they will give the flavor and, and the spirit of a dish. And if you don't have that, you cannot make a bottle of Charles Heidsieck. So I would say what characterizes us is the depth the complexity of the reserve wines, the quality, where they come from, the way they are kept in tanks at cold temperature for years and years, non-shaken, non-stirred, and then eventually blended together. And that's really quintessentially the style of Charles Heitzig. Complexity, breadth, and depth. Mm. So over the past decade or more, we've seen this incredible resurgence of Charles having been relegated to a lesser priority under its former owners. It's been elevated to a position that it deserves under your leadership, but also through the talent and vision of its chef de caves. And uh, you mentioned previously to me that under those dark former days, Charles had a hopeless distribution network, um, which resulted in surplus stock. But in a way, it has proved fortuitous for the company's resurgence, repositioning its brand with clear stylistic difference, particularly in the non-vintage category. And obviously, there's been a massive increase in sales since then, which has resulted in you tapping into some of those older wines in your library. So I'm just wondering, you know, there's been more supply pressure and how challenging has it been for the Maison to retain that anticipated style that customers love so much? That was a short question, Sarah. (laughs) 
<laughs> Apologies. In, 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 the, in, in, the, in a nutshell, trying trying to be clear and concise, we, we, we did belong for years and years to a French company called Ami Cointreau, and you know, no criticism. That's what you know. That the shareholders probably were focusing on cognac. So, as a matter of fact, the sales of champagne, not just for Charles but the other portfolio, sort of went down. As far as Charles concerned, it went down by ninety three percent, which is a bit of a hiccup. So, when Monsieur Discour bought the company in twenty eleven, the sales worldwide were about twenty thousand cases of nine liters, uh, having having been in the area of uh, probably 350, 400,000 cases 30 years before. So Charles was at one stage the top three or four champagne house in volume. That sounds a bit bizarre. It's a long time ago. But anyway, we, we, we came back to, or we came down to almost zero. And thank God the, the EPI group led by Christopher Descour are really focused on quality products and quality wineries. And Mr. Discord himself is a, is a wine freak. You know, he's the owner of Bjorni Santi. And more recently, he acquired Isoli e Olena. So, you know, he's he's focused on super, super high quality wines. And yes, of course, when the company were, you know, hit, hit this very low level of sales, we did have a lot of reserve wines. We had stocks of vintage that we had not been sold, like the 95, for example. It was years of stock of 95 untouched. So basically, uh, we put up a network of people who are passionate and focused on wine from the from the head office, including all my teams. And then, of course, all around the world, step by step, appointing distributors who, who were ready to, to embark the quality and the differentiation of Charles. So step by step, our sales started to creep up, get to creep up again. And then if we were hit indeed by the question of renewing our stocks, fighting for new uh, new grapes uh, to be able to bottle more. And what I can tell you is, is for example, in 2020, in, in the midst of COVID, our sales did go down quite a bit, but we bottled three times the level of our sales in 2020. Some houses, I won't mention name, were ready to buy significantly less grapes. Well, we decided to bottle three times more mm. our sales. And recent years, post-COVID, 21, 22, the bottling versus our sales is also between 30 and 50% more. So we are equipping ourselves in order to gear up but we will gear up in volumes and sales only if we have the reserves in, in the sellers. That's crucial. Mm, so reserves come first because yeah. I think, you know, reserves have obviously been, you know, I guess part of the DNA of your style with the non-vintage blend. And it sort of ties into my next question because we've sort of seen, a, I guess, a little bit of a change under Cyril Brom uh, toward um, the concept of oak, obviously. And, and I know you don't normally talk about oak in your champagne wines because it really doesn't define your, your champagne wines, but it is an added level of complexity that I know you've introduced because you've had such a, a demand for the champagne and it's looking for avenues and how you can add that sort of texture and richness to your champagnes to preserve the style. So I'm wondering if you could talk us through some of those ideas and, and really what the vision was and, uh, and where you see it is today. You, you mentioned a key word for Charles, it's, it's texture. Mm. And texture is something that, can, that you can achieve through years and years and years of, of, of contacts on lees. You can also achieve texture through different ways. And barrel fermentation is, is one of the ways to add texture. Indeed, and I'm speaking very honestly, uh, I, I, I'm not a bullshit guy, as you know, Sarah. <laughs> in 2020, 12, 13, 14, we were still selling nothing and we had huge reserves. So the, the, basically the new Charles had almost, the non-vintage had almost seven, eights years on lease, which which is fantastic, but it's bloody stupid if you're selling yeah. a, a, a wine at a, at a fairly modest price and you sell it at the price and, and the wine itself has the quality of a prestige cuvee. It doesn't make any sense from a business point of view. So you have to find the medium way, you know, and the medium, what we are aiming with uh, at Charles with the various chef de caves is an aging about four years on lease for the brute non-vintages and then up to seven, eight on the vintages and about, you know, eight, nine, ten on Brandomina now. So that's the key thing we want to achieve. And by doing that, we are heads and shoulders above 
most of a competition. So one way of looking at the, at, at, uh, compensating some of the very, very old reserve wines and bigger quantities of reserve wines was to add a bit of a, of a new wine texture. And we achieved that by, by oak. And indeed, in terms of communication, it's not like if, oh, suddenly Charles is going to Barrows. No, we are, it's not in our DNA. We were probably one of the first champagne houses to abandon oak. 50, 60 years ago, uh, when mo- one mo- modern winemaking arrayed. But then we were, we decided to, 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 to use oak again, a bit like a spice. Mm. Uh, we're talking about reserve wines as spice. Oak is one way of producing wine, of course, as, as we all know. It's still very moderate at Charles. It's between eight, between seven and 10%. Mm-hmm. So it's still very modest. And of course, we use old oaks. We don't want to extract too much vanillin. We don't have concepts of making vanillic wines. We just, for some crews, essentially Chardonnays, we use oak to, to, to ferment our wines. And we have approximately 500 barrels at Charles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have quite a, a unique way of, of handling that. We don't, we don't uh, store all the barrels in our winery. We spread them around in the, uh, in, in the stores and uh, the wineries of our partners, some growers, some cooperatives, so that we produce the wine in our barrels, but in their premises. So they are very proud of doing that with us. Mm-hmm. So what sort of barrels do you use? Or is it just a, a collection of different things depending on what your partner's yeah, preference it's, are? No, it's, no, it's basically, it's, it's our preferences. It's, yeah. our, it's, it's oh, yeah. actually our barrels mm-hmm. but located in, in their partner's uh, premises. So we, mm-hmm. we, we own the barrels. So we buy secondhand uh, burgundy barrels, essentially. Mm-hmm. So three, four, five years old. Nothing really uh, very original here. Mm-hmm. And what sort of experimentation did you go through in order to arrive at that position and also the percentage? Uh, it was really step by step because, uh, you, you know, it's the, the oak market is quite difficult to, to access to quality, even secondhand quality oak barrels is not that easy because a lot of houses also want that. So it was very modest. It was 50 barrels, then 100, then 200, 300. And we were testing different crews. So we came to, we came to a, a little bit of a hierarchy in, in the crews that we did be able to support the barrel fermentation. It's essentially for us, essentially the, 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 the Chardonnays and a little bit of Pinot, particularly in Avenay. Mm, okay, that's really interesting. Recently, I had the privilege of tasting an incredible lineup of Charles Heisek vintage champagnes in Australia, 2006, 12, 13, and 2008. In that order, seen through the lens of warmer versus cooler, more classically structured vintages. And I've also tasted some very old bottles of the Maison Cave going back to the 70s, which were just incredible and uh, I think really solidifies Charles Heidsick's position as wines with massive propensity to age. Can you talk us through what you think gives Charles that almost life-defying ability to age with grace, but also convincing freshness because that freshness is unwavering? I think when it comes to the, uh, when it comes to the, to the non-vintage, or the multi-vintage, the freshness comes from the quality of the reserve wines. Of course, we have a huge quantity, which which varies between 40 and 52, 53%, depending on the harvests. used to be 25, 30, and it's creeped up to at least 40. And in the recent years, it's been mingling around between 40, 45, up to 52. It might be 40 again, if the years decide that the maturity is such that you know we should only use less reserve wine. But the quality of the reserve, the way we keep them, small tanks, Cru by cru, sometimes plot by plot, cold temperature, not touched, makes them stay very fresh and healthy. Mm. Uh, that's, I think, the key thing for the brew reserve. As far as vintages is concerned, I would say, again, very scarce uh, selection of the crews and the parcels because vintage for Charles only comes as a second priority. 
uh, as we've discussed previously, we, we, uh, every harvest, we try to refill at the maximum level, the reserve wines. Like for example, in, in some years, of course, like 2002, which happened after 2001, which was not very good vintage at all. A lot of champagne houses decided to vintage 2002. Well, we didn't because we needed a lot of reserve wines. So in a vintage, which was supposed to be very sexy and glamorous, we said, okay, we're not going to produce a vintage because we need to be plentiful on the reserve wine. So as a consequence, once we achieved the vintage level, you can be sure that, that you know that there's there's going to be fantastic quality because we've put mm. enough on the reserve side, and if we do a vintage, it's because we have an opportunity to produce. But it's always very limited. The average bottling of vintages in the recent years is between I think between fifty and one hundred thousand bottles that we sell over two, three, four years. So it's super, super limited. So when you're producing only that much, I mean that little, if I can put it in other words, you you're very selective in the in the quality of the grapes, and mm. hence you have a lot of freshness and ability to age. Have have you had any personal surprises when you've been tasting through some of those older vintages or the Maison Cave? Is there anything that really stands out to you as a personal favourite that you think, wow, that's impressive? It's sometimes in different difficult or little odd vintages that you have some surprises. For example, 2006, we produced a, a vintage 2006 and Blonde Millionaire 2006. Well, if we look at Blonde Millionaire 06, for example, initially it was, to be honest, and I think the whole the whole wine community will agree on that, it was quite warm, quite ample. I wouldn't say jammy because that would be offensive, mm-hmm. but it, it was quite rich and, and opulent and kind of big in your face. And two, three, four, five years after, the terroir effect came back. And if you taste Blonde Millionaire 06 today, it's one of my favorites because it still has this kind of warm, but you have, you have the acidity and the minerality and, and almost chalky aspect, which is for coming, you know, through. coming through. And mm. for me, that's, that's the secret of great wines. Mm. So of course, we have a, we have a large selection of fantastic vintages, which we all love 82, 83, 81. But again, in, in some recent years, 06 for me is a, is a nice, is a nice way to, to, to stand out Charles wines. I remember Syl Brown once saying that at some stage, it stops being a, a Blanc de Blanc and it starts being a Blanc de Millionaire. Yep. It takes on yep. a very unique character mm. that no other champagne Blanc de Blanc can testify to. Yeah, and I think the, that is the case for the 2006. So Charles Heisek and Piper Heisek have got a common ownership through the EPI group, and it was a big deal last year when the company announced it was B Corp certified, an extensive and rigorous process involving assessment of your social environmental influence. And this is in addition, of course, to the certification that the Maison has with the region's VDC certification process and also the more localised uh, look at sustainability and France's HVE equivalent. So can you explain the impact this has on your approach in the vineyard and in the cellar. We, as, as you rightly mentioned, we are part of a group that owns two Chabin houses, Charles Heitzig and Piper Heitzig. And although the houses are clearly different in terms of, uh, in terms of management, sales, commercial teams, chef de cave, we, we do share a lot of assets, particularly in the winemaking team and in the vineyard management. So this certification was something that was generated in the middle of COVID. The process started in 2020 and quite a few of our colleagues were implicated in running this process. So the certification, uh, was given to us, was granted last year with a high score immediately. Uh, we, were, we got one of the highest scores of the B Corp, uh, lab, the B Lab certification. And for us, it's a philosophy and also a course of action because it means that all of a sudden you're gearing yourself to excellence. Excellence is something you cannot reach, you cannot obtain, but you can try and be tangential. So we try to work as much as we can in terms of sustainable viticulture. We are not organic. We have a couple of hectares which are organically farmed, but this is more to do tests. And uh, I don't think any of us has have conclusions yet on as far as 
my recent discussions on that. But in terms of sustainable viticulture, we do as much as we can, limiting the pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. And uh, we try to, and it's also a philosophy that we try to persuade our, our partners to follow, the cooperatives or the vignoles. The, the, the whole future of Champagne is sustainable viticulture. We have a lot of work to do there. Of course, there's a lot of organic and biodynamic farm vineyards. We think that the future of Champagne is, is sustainable growth with step-by-step more uh, experiments on how to limit the water, of course. We don't use water to irrigate, but you, you can use water when you have young vines. That's authorized. And of course, yes, all the... Uh, you know the farming the grass uh, to see how that uh, fights against the, the the vine food and um yeah it's it's a big subject in champagne and so we we touched a little bit before on the grower network that you have and how important that is to bring into the fold uh, along these lines of more sustainability to support the agenda that you have as a maison and just wondering how does that work at Charles Heidsick in so far as bringing your growers on board to be aligned with your ultimate you know the best practitioners that you possibly can be when it comes to sustainable viticulture I don't have a ready to use answer on that one. It's, it's, as I said, it's a philosophy. The, the whole subject of VDC, Viticulture Durable en Champagne, is now completely at the fore, uh, it's at the top of the agenda of, of all the champagne houses and Union des Maisons de Champagne. And a lot of growers have understood that growers and or cooperatives. In a way, in the future, if you want to continue to supply grapes to some houses, including us, you will have to be certified. Now, of course, it could be a bit of a, of a you know head-to-head bullfight because at the end we will always need vineyards we will always need uh, grapes so if in 10 years nobody's certified we still need them but of course we what we are doing collectively is putting a lot of pressure essentially on the cooperative and, and the big organization of cooperatives because then they can filter down to their mm. adherents or, or growers i think everybody's understanding that it's uh the, the the way forward for champagne is producing quality wines which are you know diversified uh, with a lot of uh, singularity and we all need to to embark on that on that uh, on that momentum mm. so you've had a bit of a step change in chef de cave over the last 12 months with your much loved and respected chef de cave Cyril Brown leaving and Elise Losfeld being appointed to the role formerly of Moat Hennessy and I met with Elise uh, quite recently and super impressed by her uh, her transparency her technical prowess and re- really down-to-earth attitude was really inspiring so what has Elise brought to the role that stands out most to you so far Ability to learn and ability to to shake all her certitudes. <laughs> uh, you know, she's extremely bright. She's worked for ten years with the four chef de caves of the Moet Hennessy. Uh, sorry, the well, the Moet the Chandon division. So you know, Dom Perignon, mm-hmm. uh, Moet Chandon, Mercier, Ruinard. So she's she's worked with all these guys who are tremendous chef de caves and the tremendous winemaking team at, at, at the Moet Group. And so she's she she had kind of kind of transversal role. So of course she was able to to work with different kind of specifications, different personalities of course and she was able to learn a lot and she comes from a winemaking family in Montpellier Chateau de Langueron from her mother and grandmother so she she she's always been raised in philosophy of winemaking and so what 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 she what's uh, what's stunned me immediately is her, her capacity to try to forget what she knows in in, ter- in terms of you know being able to absorb new things so it's uh, a lot of theoretical knowledge that you have through, mm-hmm. through her university of agronomics but also putting on the side on the on the sideways what she's learned in her previous roles and getting you know to learn what she has to learn as far as Charles Hatchick is concerned, of course, and the combination of both will be fantastic. Mm. How do you see her forging her own path here? Has she set her eyes on anything in particular that you can tell us about? I think she's she's passionate about fermentation and controlling the fermentations, but she will talk to you about that herself. So, yes, she's been really passionate about discovering the the vignerons, the growers, the style of the wines, tasting 
years and years and years of Charles wines back in the fifties, back sixties to understand how the wines would have been made. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't have the trace of these wines any longer because it's been lost in translation. Most of them we have, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, nearly all of them, but the, the, there are the odd wines. You don't really know how they were made and what the vision of the Chateau Cap. So it's very interesting to try and retro yes. uh, work or figure out what the chef de cap had in mind when he was producing a 1961 Royal. So uh, that, a, that needs a lot of humbleness and, mm. and she, show, she certainly has that. Mm-hmm. So we're currently in the middle of Harvest 2023, a complicated year by anybody's standards and one that uh, some people have said is a vintage of precision, requiring a great deal of caution and management plot by plot, row by row. How is Charles managing right now? We're kind of doing okay in terms of our vineyard. Of course, we can we can manage with a lot of precision our vineyard because we have our own teams. But then we still have to buy about eighty five percent of our grapes, so we depend on the thousands of growers and and dozens of cooperatives. So it's a very very uh, catch and twenty two situation. I mean, the the, the, the Chardonnays globally speaking, are in, in good condition. The level of sugar was quite high. The acidity is holding. In the Pinot Meunier, it's 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 not as bad as some years like 2017 but it, it's not it's not looking great mm. uh, we have a lot of diversity with uh, some insane vineyards some grapes which are ripe and some which are rotten mm. within two yards difference and it's a very it's a very big burden on the on the shoulders of the vineyards who've been some of them being do, doing some green harvesting a couple of months ago because they knew they would have a big harvest and in the end they're having low yields and the sugar level for some of them is not fantastic and the acidity is not holding great so Pinot Noir and the Concru are fairly okay we test with Elise a couple of days ago, well, actually last week in Ambonnet and Bouzy, some Pinot Noirs. Some of them were, and you know, it was 35 degrees outside, so we were tasting some berries mm-hmm. and they were really, really, it's you know, boiling, you, you taste yeah, the berries, boiling. The boiling hot. Yeah, so yeah. How can you really assess if the wine still has the acidity or if it's not getting jammy? And there was big differences between the three plots that we tasted. So but globally speaking, we're quite happy with Pinot Noirs. The Chardonnays are beautiful, as we've seen, particularly in the barrels. They're fantastic. Meunier is a bit more difficult, mm-hmm, but um, mm-hmm. we don't have the, we're only, we're only kind of over, over halfway the harvest. We still have quite a few days yet. Mm. So you said Chardonnay is looking particularly nice. Is that also outside of the Côte de Blanc? So where you're sourcing, because you do look for Chardonnays that are yeah. particularly a little bit more textural as well, not just for the Blanc de Milanais. So what are they looking like? Well, we tasted the Chardonnay. I didn't taste myself because I wasn't there, but in Beton, in Cézanne, but I'm, I was still there beautiful. And Elise and I were in Montgueux last week and we tasted some beautiful Chardonnays mm. there. Yeah, mm-hmm. back, back Friday. So basically the sort of first couple of days of the harvest. I think Cote de Bar's looking generally pretty yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Some some of the harvests are quite low because they were they were affected earlier mm-hmm. on. Globally speaking, of course, the key thing about this harvest is the gigantic size of the grapes. 230, 35 grams average bunch versus 160 in the past 10 years. And also they're very, very tight. So sometimes they're, they're very difficult to cut because they are completely uh, uh, surrounding the, 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 the cane or, or the wire. So it's quite difficult to cut them. But sometimes, uh, astonishingly, you have a grape which you can be green on one side and mm. overburned on the other side, which is the kind of thing we have, we saw in 2003, for example, many, yeah. many years ago. So in a year like this one, does it change your strategy a little bit insofar as where you're sourcing the fruit from? Because you can source, obviously, through cooperatives, growers, and you can pick and choose what you need. Does your strategy change a little bit to source for more healthy fruit, for example, than, um, I guess, more traditional channels where you would normally go? Because they may be affected. Yeah, what, what, what you try, what you try to do with, with limited with limited means, because you don't you don't manage these people in a hierarchy way. But with corporate, you try to 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 suggest them the time of picking, of course. Uh, so that's that's the one thing we can do. But with limited 
with limited means because this year there is so much fruits mm. that the conferences are really bombarded with the, with the boxes of wine uh, of grapes coming, and it's difficult to really put pressure on the cooperatives if you're as small as Charles to tell them, oh, please pick, you know, harvest tomorrow morning very early and press in the afternoon. So I guess we're trying to do the itinéraire of the grape cutting along the maturity mm-hmm. uh, cycle and the acidity cycle, but uh, it's as good as it gets. Well, we certainly want more Charles, that's for sure, and we wish you all the very best for harvest. It's going to be interesting to see what the outcome is and to taste the juices as we go along and also to taste the Van Clare early next year. So let's see how we go. So all the best for harvest, Stephen, and thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much, and see you soon down under. <laughs> thank you. Wine and Bubble is a boutique and independent information source dedicated exclusively to telling the real story of Champagne. It was launched by me, Sarah Underdown, in November 2018, after almost a decade of working in the champagne industry as a recognised writer, educator and presenter. Wine and Bubble brings together a network of Australian wine journalists, sommeliers, educators and industry representatives as regular contributors. As a team of champagne lovers and communicators, we are thrilled to share our unique passion with wine-loving audiences. To read more about Champagne, to subscribe to events in Australia and learn more about opportunities to join us for experiences in Champagne, visit vineandbubble.com and register your details.